Good morning. My name is Henry Morris. Um, my wife Betsy and I have been worshiping at Red Mountain for about a year, year and a half now. And uh, I was a PCA pastor for 27 years, and now I'm a contractor. But I still have my ordination license, my ordination, so I'm in the 1% of something. Um, and I appreciate Matt and the session let me be involved in the ministry of this church. We've really enjoyed it. Um, the Bible stories about Jesus' birth are found in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. And this Advent season, Red Mountain Church is preaching through the birth narratives that are found in the Gospel of Matthew. So the last two weeks, we looked at Jesus' lineage, and then we looked at the angel's appearance to Joseph announcing to him the birth of Jesus. And this morning, we are in Matthew 2. We're going to look at the familiar story of the visit of the Magi. Now, in your bulletin, um, the sermon title is Wise Men from the East. I think I would like to change that to When God Stepped into the World. That would be a better title because that's really what we're going to talk about this morning. You know, the Christian gospel is that all humans were created in the image of God and meant to have a relationship with Him. But mankind went astray and chose to go its own way. And so God did something about that. He took on human flesh. He came to be one of us to redeem us and rescue us from our sin and to restore that broken relationship with Him. And He did this in the person of Jesus. So let's listen carefully to this story of Jesus' birth, or one of the stories surrounding Jesus' birth. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born of the king of the Jews, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, And ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen, when it rose, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and ask that you who have orchestrated the writing of the word would now speak to us. 
Lord, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice in our weaknesses, in our discouragements, in our sinfulness. In all the ways that we come to you, Lord, we need to hear the words of life. And so be that to us. Uh, Work, Holy Spirit. Open our minds and our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are we to make of the story of these wise men? They are famous on Christmas cards and in manger scenes. You know, Christmas cards portray the camel silhouettes with riders making their way across the Middle Eastern sky or across the Middle Eastern desert at, under the night sky and there's palm trees. And uh, then we have major scenes that display kings with crowns and uh, robes and carrying their boxes of treasure to lay at Jesus' feet. Everything is really, really picturesque. And I would imagine it was probably quite different Uh, Stables don't tend to smell like freshly clean and decorated family rooms (laughs) with Christmas dinner wafting in from the kitchen. That's not generally the way they smell. And spoiler alert here, this is really bad. But uh, they, they came to the house where Jesus was. So they got there after he was born. They probably weren't at the manger. They probably didn't see his birth. And we don't know that there was three of them. We get the idea of three because they brought gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. I think there was actually a whole lot more than that. I think it could have been a caravan of as many as 50 people because all Jerusalem was troubled. Is all Jerusalem going to be troubled by the presence of three guys? So I think it was a big entourage that probably came in. And uh, they weren't kings. Anyway, now that I've smashed the manger... um, but what are, we to, what are we to make of this story? You know, it's, it's a favorite of children, but I don't think we quite know what to do with it as adults. And I think that's because sometimes children have the capacity to see the obvious. Um, that we, in all our sophistication as adults, sometimes miss. Uh, year, years ago, I heard a preacher preach and say this about the book of Revelation. He says, you know, adults get really confused about the book of Revelation, Because we're trying to attach meaning to all the different symbols. He said, but children get it immediately. They look at it and they say, this is the guy that wins. And he beats the dragon. (laughs) You ever think about that? You know, we used to, when, when Betsy and I were, when our kids were growing up, we read to them a lot. And there's nothing like having your children, your young children, snuggling in your lap, listening with excitement to stories. And one of our favorite series when they were young was... Ella K. Linval's Read Aloud Bible Stories. If you're a parent, I just recommend those. Um, there were five volumes, and three of them were New Testament stories about Jesus' life. Now, being a good Protestant, Ella K. Linval would never actually draw Jesus' face. And so whenever you saw these pictures, like there was a, the story of Jesus preaching to the crowds from the boat, and they showed Jesus from the back, arms like this, preaching to the crowd. And in the story of Zacchaeus, when Jesus is coming down the road to meet Zacchaeus, all the villagers that are surrounding him are in drab gray, and Jesus is in white. But it was fascinating. Our kids were like 12 months old, or maybe a year old, maybe 15 months old, and we would say, all right, they're, they're leaning back on you, sucking on their pacifier. Which one is Jesus? Ding. There he is. 
Why is it that the children could always recognize Jesus? And this morning I want you to sort of think like children. What is it about this story of the Magi that children immediately see? I think three things. A star in the sky. Foreigners coming from the east to worship. And um, treasures. They come to worship him. And so I want to think about that. Three things that happened when, when Jesus was born that are worthy of our consideration. And the first thing is this. There was a star in the sky. Verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The ESV translates the traditional, we saw his star in the east with, we saw his star when it rose, which is probably a more accurate translation. They saw the star when it first arose. And perhaps these guys were sitting out on their porches some 800, 900,000 miles away, looking out at the night sky, and they noticed the new star. We're going to talk about them a little more in a minute, but they were... They were men who studied these kind of things. And they perceived that this star was an indicator that the king of the Jews was born. Historians and astronomers tell us that there was some astronomical event that occurred around 7 BC when Jupiter and Saturn, a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, and maybe this is what they saw. And maybe that's what God used. We don't know. Um... But they perceived that this star was indicating the birth of of the king of the Jews. Um, And Matthew doesn't actually say that the star led them to Jerusalem. It says they just saw his star. And it may be that they had had some old manuscripts of the Bible from the time when Daniel and those folks were exiled in Babylon. And maybe they had read some of these stories and they said, okay, this is the king of the Jews. We're going to Jerusalem. And the star was in that general direction. We don't know, actually. Um, But then something else happens in verse 9, which is definitely unique. Well, the first part was as well. After the Magi go into the king, Herod, and they talk to him, they go on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it arose went before them and came to rest over, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So it seems like the star went away for a little while. And then after they met with Herod, it came back. And this time it led them specifically to Jerusalem. So this is some sort of supernatural event. This is some sort of cosmological event where God actually directs and creates a star in the sky. And it leads these men to the Savior. It leads them to the king of the Jews. So what are we to think about this star? Well, <laughs> let me ask you this. Who does that happen for? Nobody. I don't have one friend in my entire life whose birth was ever announced by the coming of a star. Except Jesus. 
And so what's happening is through this star, God is telling us that something glorious and magnificent and miraculous and supernatural is taking place here, that God himself has come to earth and the cosmos itself is signaling this in a glorious way. And you see, that's what children perceive about this story. They say, look, the star over the manger that God gave. And sometimes children believe it more than we do. You know, the birth of Jesus is accompanied by other signs and wonders too. In the Gospel of Luke, an angel appears to shepherds and tells them, Behold, I bring you good news of a great joy today in the city of David, a Savior who has been, has been born, who is Christ the Lord. And then this multitude of heavenly hosts fans out through the sky, singing glory to God in the highest. Again, who does that happy, happen for? Uh, we also read that God appears in dreams and visions and revelations to people like Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph and Simeon. And I think this ties into a broader principle, which is this. When Jesus came into the world, his coming was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles. You know, the Bible records a lot of miracles. Uh, in Jesus' life, we read that he changes water into wine. He walks on the water. He speaks and stills a stormy sea. He casts out demons. He opens the eyes of people that were born blind. He makes lame people walk. And he raises people from the dead. So, what is the point of miracles in the Bible? Well, John 20, 30 and 31 is a great verse to know. Because it tells you. At the end of John's gospel, he says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs, meaning miracles, in the presence of the disciples... But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So miracles are given to you and to me and recorded in the Bible so that we can believe. So that we can know that he's Jesus, that he is the one, that something significant is taking place, that someone significant is present. Silly illustration. Imagine that Tom Brady, quarterback of the New England Patriots, comes to Birmingham and he takes on the form of a fourth grader. And he's playing on some over-the-mountain team or Avondale team and he's playing on this football team. And um, let's say he goes into the, you know, he's just, he takes on the, four, the, the physical size of a fourth grader and he goes into the huddle and he says... You know, the fields are like 80, 80 yards long on those, and they're on the 20. So they got 60 yards to go. And, and he goes in the huddle, and he says, look, look, Antonio, I just want you to go long. And I'm going to hit you at the goal line. Really? Yes, just trust me, do this. So Antonio takes off, and this little fourth grade Tom Brady backs up, and he fires at 60 yards. And, of course, Antonio cannot catch a pass that was thrown 60 yards, so he drops it. But still, the point is... If you're a parent there, what do you say? There's something different about that kid, right? You see, that's the way miracles are in the Bible. You're supposed to look at Jesus and you're supposed to say, there's really nobody else like him. And why is that? Because he's God in the flesh. He's God coming to be one of us. And uh, I know that miracles are actually are a... A stumbling block for a lot of people. And they're like, well, you either have to disbelieve the miracles 
or uh, believe them and kind of put your intellect on a shelf. Um, there's other miracles in the Bible. Jonah being swallowed by the whale, the Red Sea parting, the walls of Jer- Jericho miraculously falling down. But I have a question for you this morning. Is that really surprising? Is it really surprising? If there is such a being as God, and he stepped into the world, why would we even be remotely surprised if significant things took place? We shouldn't be. And um, here's one way you might think about the miracles in the Bible. This kind of always helped me. If God has the power and the ability to speak the world into existence and to create the entire universe, what is it to open the mouth of one fish and swallow a person for three days? And what is it for Jesus to heal a person who has been born blind? And I would say to you, that would be about as difficult as it is for Bill Gates to pay for a piece of chewing gum. Right? You really only have to believe once. Once you believe that God is and exists, then all the miracles fall under that category. And um, the Christian assertion is that Jesus can do miracles because he's God. And they are meant to point us to his uniqueness. Uh, He is different from the rest of humanity. He is the only one who is God with us. And he's also the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I think the most important question that you will ever answer is this. The one that the Christmas hymn asks. What child is this on Mary's lap? Who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. That's the most important question you will ever answer in your life. What child is this? And the answer is given by the hymn. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing. Haste, haste, to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. So that's the first thing. Jesus' coming is marked by a star. Secondly, Magi came from the east to find Jesus. Um, not only do children notice this star, they're, always, they're fascinated by the, the Magi, the, these wise men. Now, who were they? The Magi was a name used by the Babylonians, Medes, and Persians of sort of this class of people who were astrologers and astronomers, uh, wisdom seekers. They were sort of sages, seers, interpreters of dreams. They were looking for the mysteries of the universe, really. And you might say they were kind of a combination of astrologers and astronomers. So astronomers are people who identify the stars and tell you where they are and locate them. But astrologers are people who look for meaning in the stars. And they try to predict the future by the way the stars are. And there's probably even some um, magic involved with these guys. And, and uh, truthfully, there are people who look at horoscopes and practice magic and try to find out secret meanings of things. That's who these guys were. Um, and by the way, the Bible condemns all those things. It, it condemns sorcery and magic <laughs> and astrology, <laughs> which ought to make you have more confidence in the stories of the Bible because nobody, no Jewish person like Matthew would have ever written this story. You get that, right? 
And so here are these magi, and uh, you know, perhaps they had seen the Old Testament scriptures. And Numbers 24, 17 says, A star is going to come out of Jacob, a scepter is going to rise in Israel. Um, they probably knew where Jesus was going to be born. And, and so what they are is they are foreigners traveling from great distances to worship Jesus. And I think, I think kids get that. But, you know, that's a, this would have been astounding to Matthew's readers. This would have been astounding to Jewish people. Um, and so that points to another central thing about this story, and that's this. Something deep and significant is going on here. The visit of the wise men really represents the beginning of the gospel to the Gentiles. In, Abraham, in, in Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And then God came to David, and he said, David, I'm going to give you an heir, a descendant to sit on the throne who is going to rule for all ages. And Matthew has already alluded to both of those guys in Matthew chapter 1 as genealogy. And then as Matthew goes on, he says, um, many, we have Jesus saying, many are going to come from the east and the west and recline at the table of the kingdom. And then the book of Matthew ends with its great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. So you, so you see what's happening here? This, the wise men coming is really the fulfillment of the promise that the gospel is going to go to the Gentiles. And that's the way Matthew sees it. Isaiah 63, verse 3 says, Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Uh, after Matthew, we have the book of Acts, where you have Pentecost, and the gospel is preached in all these different languages. And then you have the missionary journeys of the apostle Paul, and he goes out into the ends of the earth, and all these Gentiles believe. And that's good news for most of us this morning, because most of us in here are Gentiles. <laughs> and it started right here. And that's really what this story is about. And I would say this, if you're, if you're considering Christianity, here's something to really, or if you're investigating Christianity, here's something that you should consider. Christianity is the only major world religion that's non-ethnic. It's true by and large that all other religions are rightly called ethnic religions because they are limited almost entirely to people of a particular people and a particular culture. John Stott makes this point. He says, and so, for example, Hinduism is the religion of the Indians. It's almost entirely restricted to people of Indian nationality and culture. Buddhism is almost entirely restricted to Asian countries. Confucianism is predominantly Chinese. Shintoism is largely confined to Japanese people. Judaism to the Jews. And Islam to the Arabs. But not so with Christianity. Um... Christianity incorporates people from all nationalities. And that's, that's the significance of these foreigners coming. And we should be so excited about it. Uh, in my own limited journey as a, as a believer, I have the privilege, I've had the privilege of taking a number of mission trips. And I've, I've had fellowship with Mayans in Belize. 
And I've had fellowship with Hispanics in Mexico and uh, men and women from Uganda and England and Hungary, Romania, Jamaica, Costa Rica. And all those experiences of worship have been sweet and rich and delightful. And even in America with Asians, African-Americans, Caucasians, it's always been rich and deep. The book of Revelation says that heaven is going to be filled with people from every tribe and tongue and nations. And I just want to ask you this morning, in what other religion do you get that? There's not one. Um, If I may be as bold as to say it this way, in some ways, Albeit imperfectly, because we're imperfect people, but in some ways, only in Christianity do you truly get non-racism. Because we're going to have eternal fellowship of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And it begins now. Um, Consider how different the first people to hear the Messiah were. If we just think about the shepherds versus the wise men. I mean, the shepherds were Jewish people who were poor They were probably limited in education, not that they were not intelligent, but they were limited in education. And then you have these magi, these scholars, these wise men who lived in palaces and brought exotic gifts. And they're all part of the kingdom. They all come to worship the same Savior. How wonderful is that? We should have great confidence in the Christianity because grace has the capacity to reach everyone. And so, do you see what this means for you? It means no one is beyond the reach of Christianity and no one is beyond the hope of the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel away from God and you feel distant from Him. Maybe you've made choices that you regret. Maybe your life is entangled in some sin. Maybe you're discouraged. What this passage says is that Christianity, God's grace is available for everybody. And uh, this is a Savior who is for people such as us. The, these pagan astrologers were looking for truth in the sky, and they, they come and they find truth in a person. And you can too. Uh, Jesus came to earth so that you could know him. So lastly and briefly, uh, what, what else do the children see in this passage? The last thing is that the Magi come, and they bring gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh to Jesus the newborn king of the Jews. And the Magi show us what, a, what the right response is to Jesus coming into the world. Uh, but there, there are actually three responses to God in this passage. And you know this. Well, let's take them in order. First, there's opposition to God and his Messiah, and that's represented by Herod. This, the Herod in this passage is Herod the Great. He was born in 73 B.C. He was made the king of the Jews by the Romans in 40 B.C., it took about two or three years to wipe everybody out and kill everybody. And um, he, he, he killed everybody who was opposed to his rule. Herod was an Edomite, which means he was a descendant of Esau. And his mother was an Arabian princess. Um, he didn't come from the child of the promise, but he came from Esau. He was wealthy, politically gifted, an excellent administrator. And he was able to stay in the good graces of Rome through successive emperors... But he was not a good man. His reign was bloody and cruel. Um, he, uh, 
he resented the fact that the Jewish people did not consider him to be the king of the Jews. He resented that. Uh, (laughs) And um, one of the things about Herod is he put to death anybody who opposed him. In fact, he even killed his wife and two of his sons, a lot of his relatives, and some of his closest associates. So somebody on the floor of the Senate once said, it's better to be Herod's pig than it is to be his son. That's the kind of guy he is. And so what happens to a guy like that, and and especially in his older age, he's going to die within a couple of years of this. In his old age, he got really paranoid. So what happens when this entourage comes in, probably riding camels, and they say, where's the king of the Jews? (laughs) Herod gets threatened. And he immediately takes measures to squelch out and squash out Jesus He sends the Magi, pretending that he wants to come and worship Jesus. He's trying to find out where he he was born. And we know that Herod later kills all these young children. So he represents the type of person who opposes God. But then in this passage, there's also these Jewish leaders. Herod consults with the chief priests and the leaders. And he says, where is the Savior going to be born? And they say, in Bethlehem. Six miles away. From Jerusalem. And nobody goes. Now how about that? Nobody goes. So some people oppose God in an open and hostile way. And some people are just indifferent to God. But the Magi give us the response that that God wants. They come and they worship. And we read that they, they bring their treasure, likely their treasure boxes, their coffers, and they bring Jesus these extravagant gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. They were spices, uh, gold being obviously very valuable. Um, but these were precious spices, extravagant and costly gifts. And uh, they were not given to enrich a king. They were given to honor a king. Um, I think these wise men were actually probably worshiping better than they knew. They did not have a full-blown Christology. They did not believe that Jesus was the Savior of the world necessarily. They didn't understand that in the way that you have the capacity to. But they did understand he was a king. And so they came and they worship him. And, and what they teach us is this. That Jesus is worthy of our investigation and our pursuit and our worship. Right? Um. Pastor and commentator John Stott points out that once these wise men became convinced that the universal king had been born, nothing was going to stop them from finding him. They didn't have, uh, uh, he, he didn't say this, but they didn't have bullet trains or cars or planes, but they did travel about 800 miles, uh, which would take several weeks or months one way. And they leave the security of their homes and their families. They risk danger of robbers. They go to a foreign land where they don't know anybody. They don't know what wild beasts are there. They endure heat by day and cold by night. They take great pains to come and search out this astronomical event. And uh, John Stott says this. Our little exertions in the search of truth seem paltry compared to these guys. We hear a Christian rumor that God became one of us and we dismiss it as myth and fairy tale without ever taking the trouble to really investigate it. Investigate. Many educated people have rejected Christianity without ever having read its foundational documents. Isn't that interesting? 
And I just ask you this morning. Um, and, then, and then Stott says, is that compatible um, with intellectual integrity? To say Christianity is not true and you've never even read the Bible. And I would just ask you this morning, is it? Is it? And the answer is no. Um, but what this passage is really trying to persuade you is this. There's two people who got it wrong. Two groups of people who got it wrong and one that got it right. And we're to be like the Magi. We're to come and worship Jesus. This baby in the manger is the rescuer. He is the redeemer. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. He is the King of Kings. And really, in the end, there's only three responses to this person. Either hostility, or indifference, or worship. So these stories are meant to cause you and to me to worship, to, to consider our lives. And let me just ask you this in closing. Who, or what is it, that you worship? Who or what is it that you find yourself bowing down to? Is it this Jesus, this King of kings and Lord of lords? Um, Our prayer at Red Mountain is that this Christmas you will join those who say, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage and We're astounded, Lord, that you came to rescue us. I just pray for myself and all hearers here. Lord, we pray for our Advent season that we would be pondering uh, the birth of our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who are investigating Christianity, they would earnestly contemplate these things. Lord, we love you, and now we continue to worship you in song. In Jesus' name, amen.